Exodus 3.5, Moses is standing before the burning bush, and the Lord speaks to Moses, saying, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Today I will talk about the holiness of God as well as other attributes of God. Welcome to the Doctrine for Doxology podcast. If you ever want to email me, you can email me doctrine for that's the number four, doxology at gmail.com. I'm on Instagram at the real bear martin. And before we get going, just a little disclaimer. This podcast has changed up just a little bit. And so as I started teaching a life group at church, the podcast is the same material I'm teaching. Today, especially towards the end, I'll talk about the glory of God, and a lot of that material I've just recently gone over, maybe a few months ago, back uh, when I did a series on the glory of God on the podcast. So just keep that in mind, that uh, this is also material that I'm teaching now on Sunday. So that's why there's going to be some overlap. Um, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to do the tr- talk about the Trinity, and the, I've done some podcast episodes previously on the Trinity as well. So uh, hopefully it's, it's some new material, a little bit different approach, but there will be some overlap. Now, today will be a brief summary, and I I say that again, a brief summary of the attributes of God. Now, attributes are certain qualities or characteristics of God. That's a simple way to, to think about it. Some synonyms for the word attribute. When we think about the attributes of God... It, it, we may say the perfections of God. He he holds all of these attributes perfectly, and so sometimes they're called the perfections of God, the virtues of God, or the excellencies of God. Are some some common ways that when you're reading, to, really depends on what century of, of Christian book you're reading, as to how they're going to talk about the attributes of God, His perfections, His virtues, or His excellencies. Now, when we think about the attributes of God, we can categorize them in several ways. A very common way to think about them, though, would be incommunicable versus communicable attributes. So when I think about that word, incommunicable, the the, the root there is communicate. So you can think about God, if something is incommunicable, God is not communicating those attributes to us. And what I mean by that is we do not share in those attributes. So God is omnipresent. We are not. God is all-powerful, and we are not. So we, we those are incommunicable attributes. We do not share that. God is infinite. He's eternal. We, we are not that way. And so those are God's incommunicable attributes. His communicable attributes, however, are attributes of God that we do share in in some way. We we have that in common with God. Now, obviously, you know, we are not God, and so we do not possess those attributes in perfection, infinitely, as God does. But when we think about the attributes, of, like the ones we're going to discuss today, holiness, righteousness, love, we, we as humans can live holy lives. We can act righteously and, and justly towards others. We can love others. We can be faithful towards others. Now, obviously, it's not the the way that God is, but those attributes of God are, in some sense, communicable to us. So when we think about the attributes of God, there's incommunicable and communicable attributes. 
The last two weeks, we've learned about the being of God or the, the, his nature or essence, what he is. And so we, we've discussed alongside of that, in, a, in kind of a roundabout way, the incommunicable attributes of God. For instance, because God is spirit, he is omnipresent. Because God is assay, we talked about the aseity of God, he is omnipotent and omniscient. So you can go back in, in previous episodes and, and catch up on that if you haven't already. God is sometimes said to be infinite, and we discussed how God being infinite can be thought of as an adjective of God's attributes. He, he is infinitely holy, infinitely righteous, okay, things like that. William Hendrickson says, God is equal to each of his attributes, whereas he possesses, now he has possesses in air quotes there, whereas he possesses each attribute in an infinite degree. So today we will, we will briefly talk about the communicable attributes of God. And there's, again, there are lots of different ways you could break this down and, and you can, with some attributes, you may think I'm missing some, you may think, I, you know, oh, this one actually would be under this heading. There, there's lots of different ways that, that people have thought about these things. And remember that God is not composed of of all these parts. He doesn't have a, a loving uh, part and a wrathful part and all the, you know, he's not made up of these parts. He possesses each of these attributes to an infinite degree, and they all are in unity with one another. So you, you cannot think of God as being made up of little pieces all put together and, and working together. It's it's deeper than that. There There's a an extreme unity in all of God's attributes, a oneness to all of his attributes. So don't think of these as little little pieces of a puzzle that we're putting together and in the end we we get God, okay? Uh, but on a human level, we it's tough for us to think infinitely like that. So we have to kind of organize them and, and break them up and, and talk about them individually sometimes. The first of God's attributes we need to talk about is the holiness of God. Holiness is the only divine attribute of God repeated three times, which raises it to a superlative degree. So think about this. Repetition adds emphasis. 25 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, truly, truly, I I say to you. When he repeats himself there, it's for emphasis. Truly, truly. What what I'm saying is, is absolutely true, and you must pay attention. So he repeats himself for emphasis. Revelation 8.13 says, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. The eagle says, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So here we have, again, this repetition in Scripture for emphasis. So R.C. Sproul, in his book, The Holiness of God, which I highly recommend, he says this, quote, The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he is holy, 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 that the whole earth is full of his glory. So again, lots of different ways to think about these attributes of God, but holiness it could be argued that holiness is the chief of God's attributes. So as human beings trying to understand as best we can an infinite God, it's helpful to think of God's holiness first and then consider all the other attributes in light of 
God's holiness. So when you think about the love of God, this must be done with regard to his holiness as well. The same applies for God's justice and wrath. So keep in mind God's holiness all along the way. Now, God's holiness should be considered in two different ways. How is God holy? Well, first off, just by his very nature or essence, he is holy. He is separate from creation and infinitely superior. So, he, and, and I'm getting ready to talk more about that in a second. So, one, he is separate, and two, he is absolutely moral. He has absolute moral purity, and this is a, this would be the attribute of God's holiness. How God acts, he is absolutely moral. He has absolute moral purity. So, first off, he God is separate. This really gets at just the root of what holiness means. So primarily, holy just, holiness just means separation, set apart, you may, may hear people say. Uh, Paul Washer uses this illustration of holiness. He, says, he, he uses the illustration of his wife cutting vegetables and separating those vegetables. They, to cut uh, and separate that is this idea of holiness. Genesis 2-3 says, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So the Sabbath day is set apart as holy. It is different. It is separate than all the other days. So in a basic way, that, that's how we can think of holiness as being set apart or different. Now, God is holy in his being. Who God is, he is completely unique. There is nothing like God. Again, I think it's always important we keep in mind the the huge distinction between creator and creation. So God is holy, unique, and separate because he is ase. Remember, he is not dependent on anything. He is self-existent, self-contained, eternal, and we are not. And so because God is the only being that way, he is holy and separate and unique. Isaiah 40, 25 says, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. So R.C. Sproul, in talking about the holiness of God, he said, When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendentally separate. He is so far above and beyond us that he seems almost totally foreign to us. Holiness is not just, in another place, Sproul said, holiness is not just an attribute. It is God's very essence. So again, when we when we think about these concepts sometimes, God can seem transcendental and so far away from us, so, so distant, so unlike us that it, he's just foreign to us. And that is okay. Keep keep in mind that we we certainly affirm that God is our loving Father, and we have a relationship with God. He He is we are His people, and He is our God. So that's true as well. But it is it is appropriate sometimes to consider these deep things of God's, and and, and make sure that we keep in mind that God is holy, and this is this is the the God that we have the 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 pleasure of having a relationship with. Um, he has made himself known to us. And so we we see God's grace in that. We don't we don't deserve anything from God. And and he is gracious still to reveal himself to us. 
So it's okay to think of God in this transcendental way, and then keep in mind also that um, God sent his son to save us. So he is a personal God that we have a relationship with as well. Now, because God is holy in his essence or nature, he is also the standard of moral purity. So we're kind of shifting. Remember I said holiness can be thought of in two ways. God is separate, and he's also absolutely moral. He has absolute moral purity. So he, God has no moral judge over him to evaluate him. N- nobody stands over God, looks at the, the things he does and the, the way he acts towards his creation and says, okay, yes, God, I will confirm that you are indeed holy. No, God's holiness is, is simply based off who he is. He is the standard of holiness. What God does is holy. What God does is moral purity. We are made in the image of God. Now, that image is marred. We don't think correctly because of sin, but we still are, are image bearers of God, and, the, and there's there's at least a small amount of that in, in all of us. So we have these internal uh, beliefs, standards that we, that we know about, like universal moral laws that that everyone just kind of knows this is right and this is wrong. That is because we are made in the image of God. So no one is judging, no one stands over God and gives him the the JD Power award for moral purity. No no one is judging God. God is the standard. And so that's that's how God is absolute moral purity. Now, when we think about that, moral purity, in, a, in a, a negative way of stating it, is that it is completely separate from sin and evil. So when, when the holiness of God is grasped, even in a small way, men are more aware of their sin and evil. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about the moral purity and, and holiness of God. He says, quote, you will never have a knowledge of sin unless you have a true conception of the holiness of God. And that is perhaps why the modern conception of sin is so inadequate. We do not spend sufficient time with the doctrine of God and with the holiness of God. That is the way to see sin, not primarily by self-examination, but by going into the presence of God, end quote. I think that last part is excellent. When we think about evaluating ourselves we, we've and, and our sin— we actually need to meditate on the holiness of God. Think about the holiness of God. Learn about the holiness of God from the Bible and let that show us our sin. This is the, the perfect example of this is in Isaiah 6, verses 3 through 5. Isaiah is standing before the throne room of God. It says this, verse 3, And one called to another and said, these are the, the angels around the throne, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, this is Isaiah saying, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, one way to view the Bible as a whole, just the the general message of the Bible, there's lots of different ways to, to look at it, and they they're all, they're all can be very helpful. One way to view the Bible is that is it is explaining the holiness of God. 
So in the Old Testament, the Lord is revealed as holy over and over again. In Exodus 3.5, this, uh, this is the verse that I started the podcast off with. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And so this is the Lord speaking to Moses out of the burning bush. A few chapters later, Exodus 15.11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Now, when we think about the holiness of God and the Bible teaching us about that, where does God dwell in the tabernacle and then in the once the temple is built in the temple? He is he is he says his presence is there. Now, of course, last week we talked that that God is spirit, and so he is omnipresent, he is everywhere. But as he's teaching the Israelites about himself, about his holiness, he says that his presence will be in the most holy place or the holy of holies at the center of the tabernacle or the, the temple. And that was separated by a, a huge, thick curtain that the, the priest only went in once a year to make the sacrifice of atonement. And so this there was a separation. God is holy. The most holy place is separated out from the people. And so God is emphasizing his holiness there to the Israelites in the Old Testament. Also, he gives them the Levitical laws. Another name for these laws are the is the holiness code. And so the, the Israelites were set apart from the rest of the world at that time. They were different from all the other pagan nations. They were unique. They were, they were holy to God. So what does it mean when God says, you shall be holy for I am holy? 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16 says this, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So Peter is, is talking here in, in the context. He says, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He also says, uh, be holy in all of your conduct. So in the way that you carry yourself and also the thoughts that you have in your mind, be different, be set apart, be, be focused on holy things, the things of God. As obedient children seeking to obey uh, uh, their parents, you seek to obey God. God says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, that is a quote. Peter is quoting the Old Testament there. And so it's from Leviticus 20. Uh, but let me give you just a, a little bit of context here. God drove out the pagan nations inhabiting the promised land. The Canaanites there were doing all kinds of what the Bible says is abominations in the sight of the Lord. So the, these abominations were so bad that the Bible says that the land vomited them out. These pagan nations were, it was uh, things like child sacrifices to, to false gods, um, so abominations before the law, all kinds of sexual impurities, um, just lots of wicked practices. And so God says the land vomited them out. And so when the Israelites are, are coming into the promised land, God is giving them 
these laws that they should keep, his holiness code, and he's telling them, do not fall into the same practices that these pagan nations were doing, or the land will vomit you out. So we can read about this in Leviticus 20, verses 22 through 26. God is is speaking to the people. He says, you shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So in summary, to be holy as God is holy is to be two things, to be separate and to be morally pure. Another way to think about it is you are an image bearer of God, so represent God well, to be holy as God is holy. He is separate and morally pure, and you be that as well. Obviously, we will not be holy in the same way that God is holy, uh, but that is the that is the command that we're given. Now, when we think about moral purity, uh, just keep in mind that that's just a, it, it, I've got to define my term here, because it is not just the outward actions. Charles Spurgeon says this, holiness is better than morality. It goes beyond it. Holiness affects the heart. Holiness respects the motive. Holiness regards the whole nature of man. So there, even though I'm using the phrase moral purity, it's certainly more than just outward actions. It, It has to deal with the heart. Now, the next attribute of God I want to talk about is his righteousness and justice. Now, these two words have the same Greek root, okay? So let me give you an example of that. This is Romans 3.26 says this, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, all right? So there we have the words righteousness, we have just and justifier. So in the Greek there, the lexical form, the, the dictionary form, of the word righteousness is dikaiosune. The lexical form of the word just is dikaios, and for justifier, it's dikaio. So all of those have that same root, okay? And so it's it's from the, the same word. Righteousness and justice can be thought of as, this, it's, it's from the same Greek root. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones points out a difference between righteousness and justice that I think is good. He says that righteousness is God's legislative holiness. So the legislative branch of government is supposed to make the laws. So righteousness is God's legislative holiness. The attribute of God's righteousness would be thought, can be thought of as his legislative holiness. God gives us his laws in order to impose upon us his righteous demands. So this that is that is God's righteousness. When we think about God's justice, this is God's judicial holiness. So the d- judicial 
branch of government exercises penalties uh, for violating the laws. And so the the justice of God, his judicial holiness, is God exacting penalties from those who have been guilty of breaking his law. So the righteousness of God is God's love of holiness, and the justice of God is God's abomination of sin. So di- some different ways to think about those, those things. Now, how does God show his righteousness and justice? Well, one way he shows that is his hatred of sin, his wrath. So John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So God's, God hates sin. And one way he displays his righteousness and his justice towards that sin and ultimately his holiness is through hating that sin and and his wrath, his punishment uh, going towards that sin. Now, another way that God shows his righteousness and justice is the way that he forgives sin. This is a very, very important point for Christians to understand. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why is why is that phrase, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness? Why is that phrase so important? It's because God's justice is not compromised by his forgiveness of sin. God will not violate his own holiness in order to forgive sin. And so when we think about sin, Sin is breaking God's law. Sin, because God is holy, he does not associate with sin. He hates sin. Sin, All sin will be punished by God. So how can he forgive anyone and, and, and maintain his holiness? Because it, he can't just forget about sin. Now, the Bible certainly talks about God forgetting about sin, casting it in the sea, you know, separating as far as the east is from the west. These would be uh, poetic uh, ways to speak about God forgiving sin, but God does not forget anything, and He certainly doesn't let some sins just kind of slip under the rug. Okay, all sin against God is punished by God. Perfect justice. Now, either your sin is the the punishment for your sin is is bore by Jesus on the cross or you will pay the punishment for your sin eternally in hell. But all sin against God will be punished. So Jesus is our propitiation, is what the Bible says. And so propitiation, it satisfies this wrath of God. By God placing the punishment for for Christians' sin on Jesus Christ, his wrath is perfectly satisfied for that sin. Justice has been done. Okay, that's what's happening at the cross. God is justly punishing all sin that that believers commit against God. So when when that happens, then God is just in forgiving us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins because the punishment for our sin has been paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. God is just in forgiving us, okay? His his holiness is not violated. 
Now, this is a major, major issue for Islam because Allah, the, you know, Muslims would say Allah is all-powerful, he can do whatever he wants, he can forgive sin, and but there is no way, there, God, Allah's justice there is, um, is not complete like it is for the God of the Bible because Jesus is taking the penalty for those who are forgiven. In Islam, you just, you know, you you may sin before, uh, you know, against Allah, and then if you just submit to him and basically pledge allegiance to Allah, then Allah will forgive you, maybe, okay? So there, there's, there's no assurance there, but even deeper than that, how does Allah forgive sin without punishing that sin. It, it breaks down. It's a, it's a breakdown in the holiness of Allah. And so that is a, a, a huge issue for Islam. I, and so that's what I try to communicate, that problem, when I'm speaking with Muslims, because I don't think that there is a, a good answer at all in their system. How does Allah forgive sin and yet maintain his supposed holiness and, and justice? So um, something to think about there, just a little side note. Now, the next attributes of God I want to talk about are his goodness and love. And I just want to emphasize here, before talking about the love of God, it's important to point out the order in which we are discussing these attributes. You must start with holiness. You will not understand the love of God properly unless you first understand his holiness. So this is the problem with non-believers who criticize the God of the Bible. They make moral judgments about God based on their own standards of, of love and you know those, those types of things, their own standards of morality, forgetting that, the, that God is holy and he is actually the standard of all morals. Cornelius Van Til said this about non-believers who are, who are complaining about God. They're basically using the, the standard morals that God has given them because they are image bearers of God, they're basically using those to complain about God himself. Cornelius Van Til said that they're like a child being held up by their father, yet the child is slapping the father in the face. Now, perhaps the best way to speak of God's love is to talk about his grace and mercy. This is because God's love is not based on our goodness or lovability but on God's choice to love us. C.S. Lewis says, God loves us not because we are lovable, but because he is love. Not because he needs to receive, but because he delights to give. Martin Luther says, God does not love us because we are valuable. We are valuable because God loves us. I think a, a verse that really solidifies this point that Love comes from God, and, and and again, not because we are lovable, but because God is the one who loves us first. 1 John 4, 7 through 11 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
So there, you know, we, we, it's clear that love is from God. So the way God loves us, a, a, a simple way to think about it is through grace and mercy. Now, the way that these are different is that grace is given to us. It, it's a gift that we do not deserve. A gift that we do not deserve. Mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. So when 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 God is merciful towards us, we deserve punishment and he does not give us punishment. So that would be the difference between grace and mercy. I like this verse, Psalm 103, 8 through 12. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. For as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Now, as I was reading this verse, the phrase, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, it made me think about a different verse in the Bible, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. This is a very popular verse. It says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we hear this verse many times in the context of talking about the almighty wisdom of God, his knowledge is infinite, God does not you know God does not think on the same level that we humans think on and all of that is very true. But what is this verse about in the context? Well, if you read the first, the, the two verses right before it, so I just read Isaiah 55:8-9. If you read verses 6 and 7, it says this, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So the two words there that I want to bring out, that that last phrase, compassion and pardon. This is talking about the mercy of God. He says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Return to the Lord. So this is the mercy that is found in those who would turn to the Lord. This this verse, that my thoughts are not your thoughts, declares the Lord, and, and my ways are not your ways. This verse is talking about how God's mercy is not like human mercy. His compassion is not wavering like human compassion. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so is the compassion and mercy of God higher than what can be found in man. So this is the the encouragement that we must offer, well, ourselves, we, we must understand the mercy of God. We, I, when we sin, it should not drive us further away from God, it should drive us to God's mercy. That That's, I've, I've heard it said that that's really the true, um, one of the true tests of a Christian. When, when you're convicted of sin, it should drive you to God for mercy, not not away from Him. Okay, so uh, we we must understand the mercy of God, and also it's it's important as we're telling our friends and neighbors about God. the 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 thing that non-believers will say a lot of times as they're learning about God, they say, "Well, you know, you just don't know the things I've done." They they feel unworthy to come to God. Um, 
you know, because they, they feel like they've sinned too much, th- those types of uh, things. Well, it's certainly a good thing to, to feel unworthy before the Lord. We saw that with uh, Isaiah who says, woe is me. I'm, I'm undone. I'm, I'm lost, right? Um, but th- th- so, so there, there is a, a good part to that. But we also have to teach them that God is merciful. Return to the Lord. Go, go to the Lord. He, he is merciful. I love the hymn, His Mercy is More. Verse 3 says, What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. The last attribute that I want to talk about is the faithfulness of God. Lloyd-Jones says, when you say that God is faithful, you mean that he is one upon whom you can safely lean. It means one on whom you can absolutely rely, one upon whom you can depend, one upon whom you can stay yourself without ever being in any doubt that he will suddenly let go and let you go. Lamentations 3, 22 through 23 says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I think the faithfulness of God is one of those attributes that I most take for granted. You, 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 just, you just assume it without ever thinking about it enough to appreciate the faithfulness of God, that He is always faithful. What a blessing it is to, to have this assurance from God that He is faithful. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He, he, he will forgive our sins as we come to him um, confessing them. I think about another hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Now, in closing, as we are thinking about the attributes of God, uh, I think it's important to keep in mind that that holiness is the chief attribute. That's a, a good way to think about all of these attributes. It's not just an attribute of God, but holiness is part of his very nature. And from his holiness flows his righteousness, justice, love, grace, mercy, and faithfulness. Now, what is God's glory? In thinking about the attributes of God, I think a good definition of the glory of God is the display of his attributes. God's glory is the display of his attributes. So when the Israelites saw the glory of God in the thunderclouds over Mount Sinai, this was a display of God's power, God's holiness. They said, you know, Moses, we don't even want to go near you. You go up for us and talk to God. So God, in various ways, when we see the glory of God, we are, we are seeing something about God's attributes. And so in, in Scripture, we, we have God's glory is this bright, shining, unapproachable light. We, we see the glory of God as light compared to darkness. Um, anytime God puts his attributes on display, we see the glory of God. In John 1.14, it says this, And the Word, this is talking about the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory— Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In John 2.11, 
This is the first of his signs. This is right after Jesus turned water to wine. It says this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. When Jesus turned water to wine, he manifested his glory. He is showing us his attributes. He, he is showing the disciples who he is. And it says his disciples believed in him. At the transfiguration, Luke 9, 32 says, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. So at the transfiguration, they get a brief glimpse of the, the true glory of Jesus Christ. So he's showing his attribute. He's showing who he truly is. This is a way we can think about the glory of God, the display of his attributes. So we see these attributes on display best at the cross. The cross is where all of the attributes of God seem to converge, and we can see every one of them in some way at the cross. So at the cross, we see the holiness of God. At the cross, we see the righteousness and justice of God as no sin is left unpunished. Either Jesus bore your sin on the cross, or you will pay for your sin in eternal damnation. At the cross, we see the love of God as he sent his own son to be a propitiation for our sin. We see the love of the son laying down his life for the sheep. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At the cross, we see the mercy of God. Christians, being being wicked sinners, are not punished for their sin. And it's not just that we are not punished for our sin, but we are shown grace in our justification. We are given the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, and this most certainly is not deserved. It is the free gift, the gracious gift of God. At the cross, we see the faithfulness of God. He promised Adam and Eve as they were dealing with the curse and shamefulness of their sin. God promised one who would crush the head of Satan, the deceiver and accuser. All of God's attributes converge at the cross. When you doubt anything about God, look to the cross. If you doubt his love, look to the cross. If you doubt his justice for sins committed against you, look to the cross. If you doubt God's faithfulness, Look to the cross. So as I read this closing, uh, these closing verses, uh, try to find the different attributes of God seen uh, in these verses. And this also is, is talking about what's happening at the cross. Some are going to be obvious, and some you have to read between the lines, but there are several there. And this would be a, a great uh, Bible study one morning, is just to look at these verses and, uh, and, and ponder what attributes of God can be seen or implied uh, in these three verses here. It's Romans 3, 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus.